want to invite you this morning to grab your Bible and open to Esther chapter 2. We have our work cut out for us this morning, not just as we compete with Crossroads for sound, but just as a tough chapter too. There's a, a lot in here and I'm excited to, to look at it with you this morning. As you open Esther chapter 2, I just want to remind you of a really important truth throughout the Bible. And it's this, that God uses flawed people. God uses flawed people, people who aren't perfect. Uh, Jesus said to Paul, he records these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about Christians. He, He says this, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak, what's low, what's despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are implied something. Why? Paul writes, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God uses flawed people. Again, so much of the Bible story points at that truth. It's, it's not about the people in here. The Bible points to God. He's the one worthy of our attention. God is the one that's worthy of our, our praise. He's the one that's really deserving of our affection and just our attention, our, our adoration. So many flawed people throughout the Bible. Just to name a few, Abraham, just a, a man greatly blessed by God, chosen by God to be the the patriarch or the the father of Israel, did so many great things, yet Abraham was a liar. Abraham was fearful. Abraham listened to his wife when he really should have listened to God. There's others. Elijah, probably the best prophet in the Old Testament, got to do so many cool things, got to call down fire from heaven. He got to just destroy a ton of those prophets of Baal. He, he ran like a, a marathon faster than a chariot. He just did so many cool things. Yet one threat from Jezebel just turned Elijah into this, this little puddle on the ground. He was so afraid and he begged God to kill him. He was so flawed. Moses led God's people miraculously out of Egypt, but not only was he a murderer, but he had a horrible temper. Noah was a drunk, Jacob a cheater, Rachel a thief and an idolater, Jonah ran from God, Rebecca was manipulative, Miriam was selfish and prideful, Peter got called Satan, Martha was a warrior. God uses flawed people, imperfect people. He uses weak people. Again, Paul records some words here. These from Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus said, because my power is made perfect in weakness. The the weakness that we have is exactly what God's looking to use. His power gets put on display in our weakness. God's use of flawed people reminds us that he doesn't need the wise. 
He doesn't need the powerful. He doesn't need the, the strong. God doesn't only look for educated people to further his kingdom. He uses the lowly, the weak, the despised. God uses people that are not all that. He does it to make sure that we know it's, it's him who's working. He does that to make sure that our boast is only ever truly going to be in him. We can't boast in ourselves. And Esther chapter two, I believe is a reminder of this really important truth. Esther two shows us and, and, and our big idea, God uses flawed people and he does it to make sure our eyes stay on him. God uses flawed people to keep our eyes on him. I'm going to read a a big chunk of of chapter two, and I know it's long, but it's meant to be read like this, and so I want to keep it all together. We'll start in verse one of chapter two. God's word says this, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. The matter pleased the king. and He did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa, a Jew whose name was Mordecai. He's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He'd been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. This Mordecai, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. She had no father or mother. The young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food. He gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 
12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and again, the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shaasgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king delighted or, or, or loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the rest, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. For all his princes and servants, he made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. Our our story resumes here. It really hasn't stopped from chapter one. And the author continues to show us uh, what kind of king this King Xerxes or Ahasuerus actually is. He's, He's powerful but he's also excessive. That picture is meant to be shown here. He has no regard for other people. Really powerful, really corrupt. But the author also continues to just kind of chip away at this king, to, to mock him, to show us that in the end, he's really not anything to fear. His power is corrupt and he has a lack of wisdom. Authors trying to show us how the odds are are stacked against Esther and Mordecai in this Persian place. But God, in this undeniable way, is going to use them. He's going to use Esther and Mordecai to, to make sure his promise that was made so long ago is still good. And I want to look at this story in two parts, and then we're going to kind of pull some application at the end. But the two parts of this story... We'll call the first part this, the new queen contest. The new queen contest. We're going to go through this text kind of fast here. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that some amount of time's passed. We're not sure how much, but enough for Ahasuerus to no longer be angry. His burning rage that he had at his former queen, it's worn off. And he remembered Vashti. That word, when used in the Old Testament, especially of God towards his people, really often implied that God wanted to show them some sort of, some sort of kindness, some sort of gracious act was going to be directed towards them. Genesis 8, God remembered Noah in the ark. He remembered him and caused that water to, 
to go down, to subside. And Exodus 2, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and he heard the people crying out in Egypt and raised up Moses to, to get them out of there. The Lord remembered Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and wasn't very long after that that her barrenness came to an end. So it seems that the king here, he misses his queen. He wants to show her some, some, some graciousness again, but he's in a bit of a pickle here. He, he can't do anything now about the law that he made, his decree. It's impossible to undo. My youngest daughter, Hollis, has a unique skill set, uh, a bit of a gift, really, to just make the worst of knots possible. She has blinds in her room. And like most blinds, there's the strings on the side used to raise and lower the blinds. She just has an uncanny ability to to braid those into the most impossible, just kind of messy, intricate, tangled mess. (laughs) And when you look at it, you're like, this is impossible to fix. But with enough time and effort, I've undone it a few times. I think we've cut them off now, just learned our lesson. But but they can be fixed. The decree here of Ahasuerus, his law here is, is not like a knot that can be undone. This is, it's permanent. It, it can't be fixed. It, it doesn't need more time or more effort. And he knows that it can't be changed. His Decision is an immovable mountain. He's unable to act. It's law and it's words that he regrets. He remembers her, but he can't do a single thing about it. And again, like he's often presented in this book, the king depends on the advice of others. Verse two, notice that the king doesn't really ask for advice, but he gets it anyway. These actions that sort of just happened. This chapter and this book are full of them, but this advice comes from a group of guys. And actually it's a word that describes like young boys, like junior high aged, or maybe, you know, high school aged. And their advice kind of reflects that, that these guys are really young. It's a simple plan, but it's one that's not really easy to pull off. Again, the king presents that he has this unlimited power. They know that. And so the whole kingdom was going to be the target. Look, all the girls of marrying age, but of course only like the really, really pretty ones, king. Let's let's have them all sent here. And then you just pick the one that you like the best. See, junior high plan. Verse three. (laughs) Verse three is, just massive expenditure here. Every girl, you got to remember from all 127 provinces in the kingdom, they're going to be placed in the harem, given this cosmetics and the beauty treatment. We're going to just pretty them up, make them as attractive as possible for you, O king, and then you just judge who's the best. like choosing teams on the yard of the playground, but just one captain, one king here, and only one's going to be chosen. It's a ridiculous picture, but I want, I want to express this. It's also, it's really a, a dark picture that the king's 
power on display here. The, the, I said this last week, and I want to reiterate, the Persian Empire, this place, it's not a safe place to live. It's not safe. There's corrupt power in this spoiled, selfish king who does whatever he wants and acts without giving much thought to any of the consequences. Dangerous place. And verse tells us that Ahasuerus likes this idea. Sounds good to me. Let's do it. And his power just puts this plan into motion. The, the new queen contest is on. And that leads us to the introduction of Mordecai and, and Esther. And verse five and six tell us a, a, about them. Mordecai, first, he's important. We know that because of his genealogy, but also because he's, he's somebody who lives in the citadel where the important people live. The author connects Mordecai with the exile. Uh, probably this, as a descendant of Kish, it's not Mordecai who was in the exile, but, but his great-grandfather Kish, because that would make Mordecai really, really old here. But, but regardless, the author is connecting him to, to Jewish histories from the tribe of Benjamin. All these things matter. It's just reminding us and again, connecting us that this man is, is part of our Bible. He's part of the Jewish heritage and history. And verse seven says he's bringing up his younger cousin and her name is Hadassah. A second reminder that, that these two are Jewish. Esther is Jewish and Hadassah is her Jewish name and she's lost her family and she's orphaned. Again, not something that she did, but something that happened to her. All these little comments are revealing and they're telling and it's, it's intentional. Her description is important. She's beautiful. Just in case we missed it, we're, we're told two times. Beautiful in her form and beautiful in her appearance. The author insists that we connect her to Vashti. She's somebody of, of equal beauty to the former queen. But he's also doing something else here, I believe. He's, he's trying to help us see that her, her beauty, it, it's, it's dangerous as it's going to expose her to the interest of all these king's men who are looking for beautiful girls to send to the harem. It's, it's putting her in the running for the search for the new queen. This new queen contest, kind of like we talked about last week, it shows us how corrupt Hosserus actually is, but it also reveals how the details here, he's still just nothing to fear. Twice this king with, with absolute power has already depended on the advice of someone else. He can't make his own decisions. And Often it seems like our own fate kind of hangs in the balance of some other person in power. When you're young, that can be parents or teachers or some other authority figure. And as you get older, you see these positions of power in your life, maybe a, a corrupt boss or someone in the political world who just seems to be corrupt. And it can be unnerving, especially when that power seems to be targeted at, at you. As a Christian, it's, it's not exactly fun or exciting to hear about how our 
world is really just growing in more and more opposition to the church, uh, to the Bible, to the exclusive message of the gospel. But we're reminded even with that, we, we, we can't forget, again, like last week, where, where true power lies. It, it doesn't lie with these powerful leaders like Ahasuerus or some king or some president or whatever world ruler you want to talk about. Power belongs to God. That's worth repeating. We know what, how God moves the hearts of kings like, like water in his hand. He just does whatever he wants to do. And that, again, is on display here. So this new queen contest, it, it leads us to the crowning of Esther. That's kind of the second half of this story. And I know I'm not winning any points for a creative outline today, but we're working with it. Verse eight, this Persian machine, it, it puts the king's plan into motion. His decree goes public. And that word command in verse eight, it's important because it reminds us that this whole thing is not optional. It's not like signing up for auditions for a play. You don't get a choice here. And all the thoughts we have about an innocent little beauty pageant, those are not helpful. This is not the Miss America contest. Every girl of marrying age who was pretty and pleasant to look at was going to be taken to the harem gathered. They didn't have a choice. They were going to be taken, Esther to something that seems like she wasn't willing to do. And all the girls are going to be put into the charge of this, this Hegai who, who oversaw the harem. Again, not something they, they chose, not an honor to be gathered into the harem. This was not, I don't know, a, a golden ticket for a chance to become queen, life in the harem. It's, it's not the stuff of fairy tales. We've all seen way too much Disney plus here. This, this is just not, not good. And the result is the same for every single one of these girls. It's the same. They're in the custody of Hegai. Their freedom is gone. They have a new master. Verse nine shows us there's, there's something notable about Esther. She, she finds favor. And I think that's a key theme of this chapter and, and really this whole book. Esther gains favor with, with Haggai and soon she's gonna find favor with the king. And it's so vitally important as we read it. It, it looks kind of just unimportant or ordinary. And we think, well, what's so special about a pretty girl finding favor this isn't really a brain buster, is it? But we have to remember, all the girls were pretty. All of them were, 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 were stunning to look at. There's something unique about Esther, this favor that she, I don't believe she's looking for it, but it finds her. And as a result, she gets all this special treatment. I don't get it. Beauty treatments and good food and the best attendance and the best place in the harem, her entire life seems to just be one event after another of things happening to her. She didn't seek it out. She didn't look to be in this contest. She wasn't looking for favor from the, the, 
sort of the organizer of the harem. None of this is anything she wants. It's just, it's happening. Verse 10 raises a ton of question. Esther keeps her, her Jewish heritage a, a secret. And it's her older cousin, Mordecai, who tells her to do it. She re, remained obedient to him. She keeps this ethnicity of hers anonymous. And Mordecai's worried about her. Verse 11 shows that. Checks on her every day, probably because he's concerned about this information given out. We're kind of in the dark about why this is important but we're not going to be for very long as we'll find out why next week. And verse 12 just picks up again the author's description of the wastefulness and the excessiveness of this king. He can do whatever ridiculous thing he wants a whole year given to the beautification of these girls, six months of fancy lotion and six months of perfume. And after meeting the king, she doesn't see him again unless he somehow can remember her name. Listen, Haggai's job was to get these girls ready to see the king. But this is not an exciting moment. This is, this is a sad moment. It's a, a horrible picture of a godless kingdom. And the worst part of this whole thing is that this really large number of girls, they're, they're taken from their life at the whim of a king. After one meeting, they're subject to live the rest of their life in the harem. There's no going home. There's no thanks you're dismissed. No, no, you're here. Like an old toy shoved to the back of the closet just in case the king wants to see you again. No normal life, no life of their own. What's implied here is an awful, horrible abuse of human life. It's such a short sentence when we read it, but we should read it as a long and sad life for these girl Persian power. It's, it's like this. This is what it does. I was reading about this, this particular empire. Often young boys too were taken from their homes at an early age to just be subject to, to a life of serving the king. They had no choice. They were there. Enslaved to, to, to serving the king. This is the, the brutal ways of Persian power. Vashti can be discarded. These girls can be tossed away like trash. Everyone is at the disposal of the king. And here is Esther, just another pretty face in the harem held captive and, and waiting for this moment assigned her to meet the king. And, and verse 15 tells us that she continues to find favor. We're not sure why it happens, but she does. She follows the advice of Haggai when she meets the king. And there's this little chronological note here in verse 16 that reminds us about how much time has passed. You guys, he'd been looking for a new queen for four years. 
four years he'd been looking since he had discarded Vashti and, and he was fighting with the Greece, the Greeks during this time, four years of, of Xerxes or Ahasuerus. He, he's, he's at war fighting with the Spartans and he's, he's losing big time. History tells us what happened during those four years of his reign. He was defeated again and again and again. He lost tons of his resources and he was embarrassed in the eyes of his people. Why would that matter? I just think it's, it's a good reminder of the, the timing of Esther meeting this king. A scary time to be in his presence. We have to remember the, the temper tantrum that he's capable of throwing. In verse 17, though, says he, he loved her. He delighted in her. She found favor in his eyes more than the rest and Esther takes the place of Vashti as queen and, and no surprise here. Hosserus throws another party. <laughs> Everyone needs to celebrate and we're gonna do this right. This is the party I wanted to have four years ago. This is the queen I wanted to show off and now we have a new one who will do what I ask. Here's Esther. Come celebrate. And what a scene it is. Now we have a young orphan Jewish girl who's the queen of Persia. And the only one who knows her identity, her Jewish identity, is Mordecai. So what do we do with this? So what? <laughs> So what? And often we read Old Testament narrative and we just go, what is this for? What is this? What are we to make of this? What do we do with this story with, with no explanation? We don't get to hear Esther's voice. We don't get to know if she's okay with this. We don't get to hear her complaint, her suffering, her trial, or, or, or maybe her excitement? I, I don't know. We don't have a single clue how any of the characters are really responding to this story. So what do we do? So what? I've given you three things. You can jot them down if you want. We're going to go through them kind of quickly, but as we approach these three things, I, I want to say this. Since we know all scripture is beneficial, 2 Timothy 3.16 Esther included, I want, I want to say this and I want you to write it down. Esther is this way on purpose. God is doing this story this way on purpose. He's leaving the personal thoughts out and he's doing that for a reason. God must be saying something else, but what? And I bought a ton of books to read about Esther. And I can tell you that the comments, especially on chapter two, are as wide and varying as there are numbers. It's crazy the different opinions people have about Esther here. So many people want to chime in with a comment. They want to condemn them. Esther and Mordecai are the worst. Some people want to just exonerate them. Oh, they're the best. 
Look at all of this amazing stuff that they're doing. But junior hires, listen, the author of Esther, which is God himself, he does not comment. I get that we want to know, that we want to be able to say, you know, is Esther just trying to stay alive? You know, should they have stood up for what they knew God expected? But again, let's not miss this important point. The silence is intentional. This isn't the story of Daniel, where he refuses to eat the king's meat and the food, where he refuses to embrace their way of life. That's, that's not this story. This isn't the story of, of Joseph and the way he found himself in prison when he fleed from Potiphar's wife. This is Esther's story. And this is about something else. And the silence tells us that it's, it's something so important. And the first is this, that, that God is in control. That's a truth I told you in that introduction to this whole series that we would see again and again. Esther and Mordecai, they're being used by God in this undeniable way to fulfill his covenant promise to his people. God doesn't have to directly intervene here like Exodus, where God's people were threatened and they were almost extinct there too. God does something else. God is more than capable. God's in control. The same corrupt, powerful king who threatens destruction, and we'll see that next week, he can be used by God to bring deliverance. The same out-of-control power that will threaten God's people can be used by God to supply that which will save them. It's such a cool truth when we see how really in control God actually is. Number two, God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful. The deliverance of God's people here in this story, how God is positioning Esther and Mordecai, and we're going to see this more clearly when we tie all this together. But th these are the initial moves on the chessboard. God putting them in position on purpose and he's doing it to set up the deliverance of his people. All this is necessary for them to survive. And they have to survive because God's promised that there's a coming Messiah, a coming one. And they have to endure and they do. God keeps his promises to his people. And as we apply that to our own life in the new covenant, we, we know we can have salvation. We know we can have forgiveness of, of our sins. We can be this new creation because of what Jesus promises us through his life and through his death on the cross. So helpful. And we have that promise that King Jesus is coming back one day to fully and to finally establish his kingdom. God is faithful. Look around. God is building his church. Young people, old people are coming to Christ in the gospel right now, this month, this week, today. People are believing in Christ. The kingdom is growing. Christians are growing in their faith. God is faithful to keep his promise to help us become more like Jesus. And every day we're one day closer to Jesus 
coming back. I know that seems like a lofty application, but it's one that we can, we just need. You're never too young to start embracing the truth that God is faithful to his promise. And number three, and perhaps the author's biggest point, this isn't about Esther at all. The silence about what they're doing, it's here to tell us this is about God. We don't get to know because we don't need to know if this is right or wrong or what they're thinking because God uses them anyway. And isn't that incredible news for us? You and I are so unworthy of God's love, so undeserving of the gospel and his care. And even once we come to salvation and we understand our sinfulness and his holiness and what it took for, for me to get saved, Jesus' death on the cross, even after that, we still sin. I know what it costs. I know the price and I'm still attracted and tempted by sin. I still get lured into worldliness, even though I know we're called to be different. And yet God still is faithful to forgive and to use us for our good and his glory. Maybe the author's silence is on purpose here to make us ask these kinds of hard questions. And instead of judging Esther and, and focusing on her and Mordecai, we should be grateful for God's love and care and providence despite our failures. Outside of Christ, there's no one in the Bible who isn't flawed, who isn't weak, who isn't confused at times, who, who doesn't find themselves in outright disobedience. And that's a life of a Christian. As we're not perfect yet, as we wait for our Savior to, to finish the work he started, we doubt, can God still use me? Look at what I've done. Look at the mess I've made. Look at the poor choice I, I've, I've taken here. What regret? Can God still use someone like me? And the answer is yes. We're no different. God continues to work in and through us as well. Esther isn't intended to be some role model for us to follow. She may have been a virtuous woman. I, but we don't get to know. And even if she was, the author wants us to look at something else. He wants us to think about how, how God accomplished his purpose through this crazy situation that God's people find themselves in. It's, it's not about what they did or didn't do. It's, it's about despite its appearance, God's able to do precisely what he wants. And he uses flawed people to do it. How encouraging, right? To know that even when I sin and even when I screw up and I make the wrong decision, God's not done with me. God's not done with you. God uses flawed people. He's gracious and is powerful and he's still able to do precisely what he wants. God teaches us in Esther Chapter two, a really valuable truth. 
really helpful truth, and that's that he loves us despite our flaws. And the older you get, the more comfort that will bring you. The more just rest and help and encouragement you'll find in that truth. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are worthy of all our praise. Thank you for this story that that forces us to just take our eyes off the, the details of people and to put them on you instead. God, thank you for reminding us that our flaws can't mess up your plans. Father, that, that you are so much bigger than our sin and our weakness. God, truly, your, your power is on display in our weakness. Thank you that this chapter reminds us of your control and your faithfulness, but God, mostly of your love for us, a love so great that you, you change the hearts of kings to make sure your people survive. A love so huge that you would send your son to die for us. Father, we must need this encouragement today. So I pray that you would help write these truths on our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.